Good morning, church. In case you weren't aware, today is Pastor Andrew's birthday. It's fallen on a Sunday, which means he gets to hear the happy birthday song from everybody here. Let's sing happy birthday to Pastor Andrew. Happy birthday to you. happy to say he's a lot older than he looks. So <laughs> we love you. We appreciate you. You're the best. I hope everybody here is feeling very well rested after an extra hour of sleep last night. Praise God for that. Can I get an amen? amen. Praise God. And now, whether you're ready or not, it's time to start celebrating Christmas. Before you know it, all the radio stations will be blasting Mariah Carey and Nat King Cole, and we'll start pretending like it would be really nice to have snow for Christmas down here in Florida. Advent season starts in just a couple of weeks. So I think it's appropriate that today, our text in the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been in for several, several months, is a bit Christmassy. That won't be your initial impression, I promise you, but just wait. Let's stand and read Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42 together. Again, that's Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Please be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the turning point of history. We worship you this morning. We're excited to learn more about you. Spirit, we pray that you would apply the word to our life. Mold us and shape us by your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, really Christmassy, right? Maybe that's not still clear, but we'll get to it. Today we wrap up Matthew chapter 10, Jesus's second discourse in the gospel. Sometimes this discourse is called the missionary discourse. The first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the second one. It's also called the Little Commission. So let's do a little bit of review before we dive into the text, because everything that we've had before in the discourse leads us here. 
It was set up in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And there we see Jesus moved by compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. And he said there, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest, or those who would enter the kingdom of heaven, is plentiful, Jesus says. But there were very few people doing harvest work. Only Jesus was doing it at the time after John the Baptist was arrested. But he doesn't immediately send out his disciples into the harvest. A couple things have to happen first. First, the disciples needed to pray. That was where they needed to start. They needed to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send people into it. And this aligned their hearts with God's mission. Second, Jesus needed to delegate his authority, which he does at the beginning of chapter 10. He delegated his authority to a small group of men, the 12 apostles, to go proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that he had been giving to the people of Israel. Matthew gives us a list of those 12 men, and then he recounts the instructions the apostles received on their journey. They were to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and only in the region of Galilee, northern Israel. They were to stay only with worthy people who accepted the message of the kingdom and provided hospitality. (coughs) They weren't supposed to take anything with them but they were supposed to trust the Lord to provide everything they needed along the way. And then Jesus warned them of persecution that might come on the journey, and that definitely would come in the future. But he encourages them to have no fear because they have a job to do. That was the first reason. Second, because they needed to rightly fear the Lord and not men, and because God loves them. He would care for them. And verses 32 and 33 are worth noting because they lead us right into our text today. Let's look at that again. Verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus gives us these two possible groups. And importantly, the only thing that separates the two groups, the only thing that makes them different, is their response to Jesus, whether they acknowledge him or not. In our text today, Jesus starts by describing himself appropriately after verses 32 and 33. So first, not peace, but a sword. There are those who acknowledge Jesus before men and those who deny Jesus before men. Jesus is the dividing line between those two groups. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, Christmas, what a wonderful holiday filled with swords and division. But make no mistake, this statement is related to Christmas. Because Jesus is telling us why he's come to earth. The, implication, the implications of this simple phrase, I have come, are huge. Jesus is claiming to pre-exist his birth here. There was intention for why he was born before he was born. 
Again, make no mistake, this is a claim to divinity. Jesus is claiming to be God here. He pre-exists his birth and he has an intention for his birth and for his life on earth. And he tells us exactly what that intention is. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. The last time Jesus said, do not think, was Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice the similarity here between Matthew 10, 34 and Matthew 5, 17. It's the same exact structure. This is the structure. Do not think this. No, not this, but that. Do not think this. No, not this, but that. So Jesus is addressing a misconception. Back in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is addressing the misconception that he came to bring a new law and destroy the old. But he corrects that false assumption by saying he came to fulfill the law. Here, Jesus is correcting the false assumption that he came to bring peace to the earth. What a jarring statement Jesus makes here. It makes us do a double take. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean you didn't come to bring peace? Peace was a messianic expectation. We're all aware of the very famous Christmas verse from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the peace that his government of the earth brings. Or how about the imagery in Isaiah 11, just a couple chapters later, where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat? Or how about Zechariah 9.10? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and all the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Or what about Luke 2? Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And didn't Jesus just tell his disciples a few verses ago to speak peace over homes that accepted him? Isn't peacemaking a beatitude? Yes. Peacemaking is a beatitude. Yes, the disciples are to speak peace to the people who greet them. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yes, his rule will bring peace. And yes, even creation will be peaceful under his rule. But here's the thing. Not all receive Jesus' peace. The peace that Jesus brings is first for his elect in this age. And then for the whole world at his second coming, when he makes all things new. The world that opposes God now lacks peace. But all that believe in the name of Jesus receive peace, not on this world in our society, but between them and God. In Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. Our peaceless lives aren't a result of our broken relationships with other people. 
It's a result of our broken relationship with God. And Jesus' first coming reconciles us to him. The old creation, your old self is put to death and the new has been born again in the Holy Spirit. Truly, the only way to experience real peace in your life is through faith in Jesus Christ. In our preparation for worship today, did you notice, notice this distinction? The distinction between those who believe and don't? John 1, 11 through 12. This is how John frames this whole gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His own people did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him and killed him. But those who received Jesus as the Messiah and who worship him as God receive the right to become children of God. So when Jesus says he did not come to bring peace but a sword, he's saying that his claim to be the son of God, his claim to be the Messiah of Israel and the rightful heir to the throne of King David would be met with sharp division and conflict. He did not come to give peace to a world that would reject him. He came to bring the sword of conflict to the world with the truth because the truth is a sword. And it divides the world between those who receive Jesus and who don't. To explain the depths of this division, Jesus quotes from Micah 7. Micah 7 verse 6 in its entirety. Verses 35 and 36 here. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, that's lifted almost directly from Micah with some changes in language to emphasize directness. Jesus' incarnation and message of the kingdom of heaven, his death and resurrection are so dividing that even families will rise up against each other. Now, this is not an encouragement for believers to harm others, to harm people in their family, so don't misunderstand. This is a statement of warning to believers to order their expectations correctly. Believing in Jesus might just mean that even your family will reject you. Even relationships that are supposed to be built upon dutifulness and respect will crumble. A man will reject his father because his father believes. A daughter will reject her mother because her mother believes. A daughter-in-law, the newest member of the family, will reject the family she enters into because her mother-in-law believes. Verse 36 is a good summary of the situation. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, that's not always the case. Many of us were raised in Christian environments where this division wasn't even possible. But Jesus speaks in absolute terms in this whole section, not to convince us that this has to happen to us if we're real Christians, but to get across the truth that it very well might. His statements here in verses 34 and 36 are supposed to be jarring, to shake us awake. Jesus did not come to tell the world that it was okay. He came to bring real peace 
and a solution to sin. And because the world is opposed to his message of hope, and because the world loves its sin, Jesus' incarnation brought the sword, brought conflict into the world, ending with his violent death. And he knew that ahead of time. The peaceful solution to sin is not conflict avoidance. That which brought true peace to humanity was a violent act of execution, Jesus' death on the cross as a substitute for sin. Jesus does not bring peace to the world in his first coming. He brought the sword of conflict to the world, conflict over himself and his claims and his works. He brought a dividing line. A dividing line between those who would believe the gospel and those who would reject the gospel. But those aren't his names for those groups in this text. So let's look at the dividing line. Second. Verses 37 through 42 describe two groups of people. First, Jesus describes the unworthy in verses 37 through 39, which says... Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. Worth. Worth is an important concept for Matthew chapter 10. Remember back to verse 13. What would decide if an apostle's peace would rest upon a particular household? It was that household's worthiness. And if the house is worthy, Jesus says, let your peace come upon it. And we talked about what made a house worthy a couple of weeks ago. What made the house worthy was primarily the response to the message of the kingdom of heaven. Did they receive the message? But now, worthiness is a question asked of individuals. And the measure of worthiness is love for Jesus. And Jesus states it in the negative. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In a culture where dishonoring parents was such a big deal that you could face serious legal and social consequences for it, this statement is huge. Jesus demands that we love him more than father and mother. Now, this statement can be impactful for many of us. Our moms and dads are our earliest heroes. We care about what they think of us and we want them to be proud of us. But in our culture, loving Jesus more than mom and dad it is not super controversial. Independence is encouraged. And if your mom and dad disagree with your beliefs, then that's mostly okay. We want them to understand. We'll explain it to them, but okay. But Jesus was aware that the culture he was speaking to would not always be the majority culture of the church. And that's why the next line is important. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Hmm. Okay. All right, Jesus, we can disagree with our parents just fine. If they want us to believe something else... We can tell them no, with no issues except maybe an awkward Thanksgiving dinner now and then. But Jesus wants us to love him more than our children? 
Moms and dads have always loved their children, but I suspect this wouldn't have been as difficult of a command for first century believers as it is for us. Our own children are our whole worlds. We center our schedules around them. We fret over their education. We worry about their future success. We scour the back of food packages to make sure they aren't eating too much junk. We love our children a lot. And for many of us, loving our children and loving our families is the ultimate Christian good. It's almost a Christian virtue to sacrifice yourself for your children. How can Jesus make this claim on our love? How can we love Jesus more than our own children? Furthermore, how can he say that we are unworthy of him if we don't love him more than our children? It's pretty simple. Jesus is God. Verse 37 would be a monstrous thing to say to someone unless they were God. A mere mortal man cannot make the claim of verse 37 like Jesus does here. Only God can claim to deserve more love than parents and children. Loving parents more than God would make an idol out of our parents. Loving our children more than we love Jesus would make an idol out of our children. Good things. Good things. Wonderful things. Like parents and children can become idols in our hearts. When we love and serve them more than we love and serve Jesus. Those who do not follow Jesus because of their parents. Or do not follow Jesus because of their children are not worthy of Jesus. Parents, of course, represent here more than just moms and dads. Parents represent the foundation of the past and traditions of family heritage. Jesus makes a claim that he's actually more important than the past. Children, on the other hand, are our future. That's why we sacrifice everything for them. Jesus makes a claim that he is more important than your plans for the future. But verse 38 is a claim on even your present. Listen, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, this is his third test of worth. Now, we as Christians are used to the imagery of the cross. Right? Not that big of a deal to us. So it's so common here that this statement can lose all shock value for us. So let's say it a couple different ways to really feel the impact of what Jesus is saying. Whoever does not join me on the walk to the firing squad is not worthy of me. Whoever does not sit in the electric chair with me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not carry his noose to the hanging tree is not worthy of me. It's a heavy statement. This is well before Jesus' public execution on a cross. And in the mind of the first century Jewish person, there was no worse way to die than by crucifixion. On the way to be crucified, the criminal was made to carry the crossbeam, facing public shame and humiliation all the way to a horrible death. And we'll see Jesus carry his crossbeam in Matthew 27. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Jesus is saying, whoever does not hate their own life, follow me to death, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his own life more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus makes the claim that he is more important, that following him is more important than your life. Those who are unwilling to follow Jesus to the cross are unworthy of him. It's a radical kind of love and dedication. Unless someone is willing to accept public humiliation, shame, and death for his name, they are not worthy of him. Jesus does not sugarcoat things for those who would believe. And so this morning, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, with Jesus, I don't want to sugarcoat it for you either. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the Christian life. But Jesus' own comments on this statement, take his cross and follow me. His own comment in verse 39 is even more famous than Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's Jesus' most quoted phrase in the four Gospels, with only slight variation. It appears twice in the Gospel of Matthew, and in all four. So it's worth underlining if you're into that. Jesus is doing some wordplay in the original Greek. The word for life can also be translated for soul. The wordplay occurs when Jesus means life instead of soul or vice versa. It's a word that essentially means self, the whole you. Those who spend their life seeking themselves, seeking their own gain and advancement or pleasure, will lose their life. It, it's not a life worthy of Jesus. It's not a worthwhile life. It's a life that will be lost in the end. But a life spent seeking Christ, even unto death, that's a life worth living a life worthy of Jesus. In the end, those who seek to find themselves in this life above all else, who prioritize themselves over the worship of the one true God, will find a life worthlessly spent. But those who put aside themselves, who consider their lives as less important than Jesus Christ, who spend their life worshiping the one true God, will actually find life itself. Human beings are not made to live for themselves. Human beings are made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when we understand that, when we seek after Jesus with all of our lives, even to the point of death, if it comes to that, we'll find life. Eternal life. The unworthy are defined by their inability to love Jesus supremely above everything else. They make good things idols. They serve themselves. That's one side of the dividing line. The other side are the receivers. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So in wrapping up his second discourse, Jesus brings us all the way back to the beginning of it. Remember, he's giving the apostles, these 12 guys, authority here. Those who receive the apostles by receiving their message 
and by showing them right hospitality and joining with them in the mission, receive not only the apostle, but they receive Jesus. And when someone receives Jesus, they receive the Father. There's an important principle at work here, one of delegated authority. The Father sends the Son with full authority, the full authority of God to proclaim and establish the kingdom of heaven. Then the Son sends the apostles with full authority to proclaim and establish the kingdom of heaven. The apostles represent Jesus, and Jesus represents the Father. So receiving the apostles by receiving their message and by joining in the mission is to receive Jesus and the Father. And that's still true today. The teaching of the apostles is the foundation of the church. The scriptures are the only final authority in life for salvation and righteous living. Receiving the truth of the scripture is to receive Jesus. And to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. Receivers are the other side of Jesus' dividing line. Verse 41 is an explanation of verse 40. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Receiving a prophet on the basis of the fact that he is a prophet means that you believe their teaching and that they're sent by the Lord. Receiving a righteous person on the basis of his righteousness is a recognition and affirmation that they are living correctly. So receiving an apostle because he is an apostle, a spokesperson and representative of Jesus, is a recognition that he is sent by Jesus and has the truth. Verse 42 explains this further. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is not talking about little children here, like he does at other times. He's talking about his apostles. There's a descending sense of dignity from verses 41 to 42. uh, Prophets are highly dignified, mouthpieces for God. Righteous people have demonstrated their commitment to the Lord. But even these little ones, these apostles are only shown the bare amount of hospitality, a cup of cold water, on the basis of faith. Notice the reward for giving a cup of cold water to one of Jesus' disciples. It's absolute assurance. They will by no means lose their reward. The reward, of course, is what they've received. The message and person of Jesus Christ. To receive one of these little ones, one of Jesus' apostles, is to believe their message and join in their work. And Jesus says that those who do that will by no means lose their reward. So here's the dividing line. Those who receive the truth and those who don't. Those who find their life by losing it and those who lose their life by finding it. It's Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It comes down to him and how you respond to him. When confronted with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of creation, there's no more time to waffle and procrastinate. This is it. 
It's either take up your cross and follow Jesus, considering him worthy of your whole life, or seek your own interests. Seek your own life. That's the choice. And Jesus' words are ever comforting and true. If you take up your cross, if you lay down your idols, if you lay down yourself, if you repent of your sin, turn away from it to God, if you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Let's pray. Lord, as we ready our hearts to receive the elements this morning, we pray that you would see us and be glad that this would be a room of people who have laid down their lives, who have taken up their cross to follow you. Lord, as the ushers come forward, I pray that you would receive the prayers of those who ready their heart to receive your body and your blood. Take a moment, church, to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and what we are doing when we take the bread and the cup.